Hi, hello and welcome. This is the Zonecast where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs and academics. And today we have with us on the show, uh, Harris Maxwell and Corey Rosenfield, co-founders of Coins. So, hi Corey and Harris, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, we're great. Thanks a lot for having us. Perfect. So, I want to start by talking about your uh, background. So, can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Let's start with Corey. Um, well, I'd say our professional background has kind of been one. We've been working together for the better part of a decade now since we were in school. Um, I taught business administration at Laurier. Um, got actively involved in a fraternity with Harris, um, and that's where our friendship took off and our business endeavors took off together. Uh, we started with an event promotion marketing company while we were in school. Uh, that was probably around 2007-2008, which evolved into a digital marketing agency uh, where we were using our social media expertise at the time to help a bunch of small, medium-sized businesses, which evolved into uh, bigger brands and agencies as our clients, uh, and as a natural evolution in our business endeavors, our clients started asking for things that we can provide, and that's where we came up with the initial ideas for coins, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, but the agency eventually turned into what we are today, which is coins. Harris, can you tell us about your background? Uh, sure. Um, like Corey said, we're, we're very intertwined. Uh, I was at University of Waterloo in the... Uh, early part of the century, I guess, um, studying English and a minor in business. Uh, and like Corey said, we were both getting involved with the fraternity. Um, we sort of fell into a business together that started to take off, which eventually landed another business opportunity in our laps. And then when we, um, we got to a point with the agency where we were about 15 people as a team, um, and just finding it hard to scale as a fee-for-services business. We really wanted to find a way to uh, to work on a product, maybe get into the SaaS space or at least the recurring revenue sort of model. Um, and also, like Corey alluded to, our customers were asking us for things like uh, projections for their campaigns, benchmarks for their campaigns. A lot of what we were doing was like contests, coupons, sweepstakes, samples um, for some of the major brands uh, across Canada. Um, national brands, even international brands doing doing those types of promotions in Canada. Um, and, and we just saw a gap in the space. Uh, I always tell people who ask me about uh, being an entrepreneur, starting a startup, it's not really about having an idea. It's more about recognizing gaps and then uh, not being able to sleep until you attempt to solve them. So that's, that's kind of how we got where we are today, just one opportunity after another that we couldn't sleep until we tackled. Mm-hmm. So, tell us about uh, Coins, uh, the name Coins, uh, it's interesting, so tell us about the name and the company and how the uh, idea came about. Uh, so yeah, uh, Pivot being, I don't know, a buzzword of the last little while, but <laughs> what we, our initial concept for Coins is not what we're doing today. Uh, as Harris mentioned, we were building a platform for contests and coupons that a bunch of brands were licensing and using uh, and we wanted to put that into almost like a community that people could access so the initial concept um, that we named the company for has nothing to do with what we do today but that was 
it points was all it points coins there's a twist on those words there's a loyalty or rewards platform behind the coupons and samples that we were running fast forward a few years uh as our clients were asking for certain things we evolved but the name was unique we had built up some brand recognition with it so we decided to run with it and now it's more of a conversation starter than anything else mm-hmm. it's good to have a little controversy around the name i think so, <laughs> so i mean early on we were like let's just see where this goes and then it just kind of kept snowballing and and at that point we figured why bother changing it let's let's just focus on uh other aspects of the business that, that need attention and we sort of just left it for a while and now here we are we're probably on our third rebrand and we still haven't changed the name so I think it's here to stay <laughs> so can you tell us more about the products and services that you offer now after your uh, change or multiple pivots uh, yeah I can feel that um, initially our real focus uh, and our real thesis for the pivot was um, building up a data set of omni-channel digital marketing campaigns that would allow us to report back to our customers how their results stack up against sort of the industry averages. We were finding, we were getting asked a lot for benchmarks or just for some analysis of the brand's performance against, you know, similar types of campaigns because we run a lot of campaigns Um, But we were also finding there was this gap in the market where no one could really access that information, um, partially because a lot of the the big players, even smaller players in the industry, weren't incentivized to provide it, and partially because um, the way analytics and sort of metrics reporting worked uh, was not standardized in any way. Uh, A lot of agencies were focused on vanity metrics, Um, There wasn't a lot of focus on getting data out of silos. Uh, Really, it was just kind of a, let's do this project. Uh, Let's let's put together a report that looks good. Let's try and get another project. Um, So we were really coming from from a a mindset of, let's create some transparency and accountability in this space, and it'll drive the whole whole industry forward. Um, So... The, the idea of, of almost radical transparency in the space, for better or for worse, from a uh, sort of short-term business perspective was what drove us initially. Um, and as, as time went on, um, we, we never shifted away from benchmarks, but we're a bit more focused now on creating tools that a marketer can use uh, very simply with no no technical expertise needed, no code needed uh, to sort of automate a lot of the tasks that we find marketers are doing, you know, every day, doing manually, just kind of pulling their hair out, trying to trying to pull together reports or trying to trying to pull some some insights and intelligence from their data. Um, and that's that's part of what led to our, our partnership now with IBM is um, is this intelligence piece, this AI and machine learning piece. Um, that allows us to use our data set in different ways to provide different uh, different value adds for, for customers. Yeah, so to build on that, our, the data set we had collected as an agency would be our IP as we went into this business. We could take all the campaigns we had run for different clients, 
uh, organize those in a standardized format so you can make an apples to apples comparison. Uh, and then we built products on top of that. And the first product we built was a data management tool for brand managers, account directors at an agency to compare their campaigns to others within the platform uh, and get some level of measuring. Like they basically have a measuring stick to understand how their performance stacked up to others. Uh, and then more recently, uh, we've Sarah's mentioned we start to focus specifically on the uh, influencer space where a lot of our clients were coming and asking for benchmarks specifically related to influencers. What type of engagement should uh, someone that's posting about a certain topic get? What type of click-through or sale-through value would they get? How much should we pay these different influencers? Um, and influencers in layman's terms, just being someone, whether it's a word of mouth review or now a social media review and posting, brands will hire uh, persons of interest, will raise awareness for the product, um, and that will be a way to drive more of a holistic uh, ad opposed to running an ad on the sidebar of Facebook. So as this channel, which is the fastest growing bucket of media right now, was kind of taking off in the last few years, our clients were asking around benchmarks specifically there. Uh, so we've built a new product uh, specifically for influencers to help these brands and agencies figure out who are the best influencers they should work with and set expectations around their performance. Mm -hmm. So... There are definitely a lot of companies um, helping brands leverage influencers, uh, people who have uh, a lot of uh, following and using them to promote um, promote products. So are you like an influencer management uh, platform uh, where a brand can come and find several influencers and use them for a campaign? So no and then yes. Um... So we are not a traditional influencer management tool. Um, the majority of, if you want to call them competitors out there in the influencer space are working with a roster of influencers that are part of their network. Yeah. Almost like the new age uh, for modeling agency where they've got 500 people on their roster and they'll pick from there who would be the best for a specific objective or campaign. Um, we've taken a very similar approach to the core thesis we built the business around, which was totally unbiased um, across all potential influencers. And what we're doing is we're analyzing social media posts of people that don't even necessarily know they would make a good influencer. And in partnership with IBM, we're able to build personality profiles on these people by analyzing their social media posts, uh, identify what their most popular themes and topics are, and provide recommendations as to who would be the best influencers for different types of campaigns. But we have no direct affiliation with those influencers, and we've essentially empowered the brand manager or the agency um, to have this targeted list of qualified influencers for their campaign, and then they have the ability to run with that through their own tools. So a lot of the time we will work with other influencer agencies uh, to do that discovery and figure out who would be best and set the 
projections or expectations for those influencers, but then they will use their own tools or their own methodologies to actually manage the communication and create them of those campaigns. So I wouldn't say we're not a management tool, but the, from a management perspective, it's more about um, compliance, following the posts, watching you know how much engagement they get, and then tying that back, seeing how it, how it relates to the rest of our data set. Um, but I think the real magic is really in the discovery. Um, you know, if, uh, if you're looking for an influencer in a particular space, generally the, the thought leaders or the foremost experts in that space, you can find those people with a quick Google search. Um, but the trend recently in the last 12 to 18 months, I would say this has become more conventional wisdom, is that micro-influencers generate uh, a lot more purchase intent. They come across as a lot more genuine. Uh, as opposed to on the far other side of the spectrum, like a, a Kim Kardashian who makes a sponsored post every day and charges hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so, uh, it waters down the message after a period of time. Whereas when you can identify these micro-influencers um, who really are just like you or me but happen to have a, a certain passion in a particular space and, and have shown that through their history and have built up a following around that history, maybe it's 10, 20 up to about 50,000 followers as opposed to hundreds of thousands or millions of followers. Um, you work with a few of those micro-influencers and they tend to get, I think the stat is four to five times the engagement rate than a, a macro or celebrity level influencer. So that's really where I think our tech shines, shines through. Um, and because we're not incentivized by actually managing the financial relationship, uh, our incentive is to provide the best possible quality um, through the output of the technology rather than being biased towards recommending someone within a hypothetical roster that we might have. Um, so that's why we, we've moved away uh, or tried to stay away, I should say, from, from building up a roster and just letting the entire social universe be where we're picking from. Mm -hmm. So your business was founded in 2013. And since then, you have uh, raised about a million dollars from different sources, government funding, angel investors. So tell us more about that experience. Um, we've definitely been creative in terms of our ways we've uh, sourced capital. Um, we had an existing agency, so day one, we were basically loaned ourselves money from our previous business to get us off the ground to be able to you want to call it an MVP um, and that was enough to open up some doors and get some con uh, conversations going and say summer of 2015 is when we really went head down shut down the agency and focused exclusively on points um, and a big part of that transition was around some funding opportunities startup competitions specifically uh, 2015 was a year of startup contests for us we won $100,000 from Northumberland CFTC, which is a program out of Coburg. And then in October of 2015, we won uh, 250000 US through 43 North, which is a, want to call it an innovation or accelerator program out of Buffalo, which is backed by the state. So that immediately put uh, close to half a million dollars Canadian in our pocket. We were able to build out a bit of a team to support our uh, early traction. Uh, and from there, we 
did the traditional friends and family round, raised a little bit of money through uh, convertible debentures, um, got creative bringing on some early staff that had some gray hairs that we might not have been able to afford otherwise, but we paid them through convertible debt, which was something fairly unique, but it got them tied to the business and got us quality support that we otherwise couldn't have afforded. Um, and then more recently, we brought on, we raised a couple small checks from some local VCs, as well as uh, a couple angel investors. So we've kind of touched on a number of different sources. Um, and then we've also been pretty successful with leveraging some government grants that haven't cost us any equity in the business, uh, customer demonstration programs, smart computing programs that could help us uh, subsidize the cost of some projects that were early on with uh, some of our customers to kind of eliminate the financial risk on their part, but provide quality work when it came to what we were actually doing. I can talk about the grants for a second, uh, just because you focused a bit more on uh, on the more traditional investment, I guess. Um, so we, we've been fairly close partners with uh, OCE Ontario Centers of Excellence for a number of years. Um, we took advantage of their Smart Start program very early on, which helped us kind of just get off the ground. Um, a lot of people ask me because I went to Waterloo, a lot of people assume I'm a software developer, but I'm definitely not. So um, we, we've always needed to have some technical talent around us to, to keep pushing the product forward. So getting that Smart Start money early on um, really helped us get our MVP out the door. Um, and then OCE, um, Corey mentioned we did a customer demonstration program, which is also backed by IBM. Uh, and that's that's where we built the, uh, the initial prototype for um, for the influencer tool. Uh, and then OCE also topped us up with uh, market readiness, which is one of the only vehicles that OCE has where they actually take some equity uh, as opposed to being a non-dilutive grant. Um, so the province of Ontario has been been very good to us through, through OCE and then we've taken advantage of some federal programs as well. Uh, Canada summer jobs, we've got now uh, two summers in a row. Uh, which helps us hire summer students, uh, which we actually focus on Coburg for. So um, undergrad students who are from Coburg, Port Hope, the Northumberland County area. Um, we've hired a few over the last couple of years from Queens, from Western, uh, where rather than having to come into Toronto and, uh, you know, maybe not be able to afford rent on like an internship salary, uh, they can actually go home and hang out in Coburg over the summer, but still work a job in the tech space that is helping prepare them for when they graduate. Uh, and then also IRAP, we're also very fortunate to take advantage of, um, again, based on our, our presence out of Coburg. So we've, we've tapped into, um, into federal and provincial grants. Uh, and I should also throw out an honorable mention to the City of Toronto. We also took advantage of the uh, City of Toronto Starter Company, which is a $5,000 matching grant. Um, so, you know, we find it anywhere we can, uh, we're, we're pretty diligent. A lot of people, um, I think get overwhelmed by the paperwork or the, the, uh, administrative headache of all of it. So we've, uh, I think partially as, uh, just out of necessity because, because like I mentioned, we needed to staff technical people. Um, we've been pretty tenacious about getting through that, uh, that red tape and, and, getting through to the end and, and we've been rewarded by actually um, 
successfully, you know, being approved for those programs and, and going through them and, and completing those projects as well. Interesting. So, uh, when you were speaking to uh, angel investors, um, did you have a difficult time figuring out the valuation at which you would raise? We're yet to figure out the valuation. Um, yeah, that's a tricky conversation. So <laughs> there are some investment vehicles such as convertible ventures, safe agreements that help defer that conversation. Uh, you still usually would need some sort of valuation cap in those um, vehicles, and a very the majority of investors are not sophisticated enough to distinguish between a valuation cap and an actual valuation. But what we've done is basically, as we've gone through the years, we've been able to successfully raise with greater valuation caps, which means down the road when we do have more traditional institutional round and a venture capitalist and us agree on a set valuation, everyone else that's invested in the past would get a discount to that future valuation that we set. So yeah, those have generally been tricky conversations um, based on the mindset and the background of those different investors. They've gone very different ways. Um, and valuation has definitely killed some conversations very early. Mm-hmm. And with others, they've understood how to use these vehicles to their advantage and at the same time protects us. Um, so yeah, we've been to this point, we've deferred those valuation conversations as much as we can. Uh, the program out of Buffalo uh, did have functions as a warrant opposed to uh, convertible venture. So uh, it did set some level of valuation, but that was us going into that program. That was just, okay, that's how it is. Um, the same with when you go through an incubator program, there's usually a trade of equity, and that would set a valuation at that time. But otherwise, yeah, it's been, it's been for the most part, just deferring those conversations until we're at a stage that we do something with institutional investors and we set it then. I wouldn't even say that in those situations it sets a valuation. It does point to a valuation, but with the uh, with the accelerator programs with Forty Three North, generally there isn't that much room for negotiation, if any. Mm-hmm. So uh, it indicates that you're in a class with these other companies that are getting you know certain amounts of money for certain amounts of equity or taking a warrant. But uh, it's just one indicator, and, and when when angels or even even institutional investors are investing early on, you know, in the seed or even pre-seed stage, um, they really are investing in the team. They generally, you know, you might not have sales or you might be very early revenue. You might not have high MRR. Of course, if you have high MRR, um, you're probably going to have more investors lining up to, to talk to you and to invest in you. Um, and when you don't have those things, you have to get kind of creative and, uh, you know, you'll hear this a lot, early stage investors, it's really all about the team. So um, a lot of the the angels that have put money into our company are people who we've had a relationship with where we're updating them every quarter for years sometimes before the first check actually gets written. Um, so it really is about expanding your network, cultivating those relationships, setting goals, uh, showing that, that you can meet the targets or the goals that you're setting or, you know, aptly explaining why 
you chose to take a different direction than what you maybe thought you were going to do six months or a year ago. Um, and the people who invest in this space generally, they understand that they want to be kept in the loop. You know, they want to they want to see justification for the decisions you're making. Um, and then if you if you maintain those relationships and they like you, um, that's probably the best way to get a check outside of having those. Um, fundamental things that that most tech investors look for like we're a b2b SaaS company so mrr is probably the number one thing that that an investor wants to see and if you can't show that you have to supplement it with other things Mm -hmm. so what are your investors canadian or u.s based well obviously 43 north out of buffalo um is a is a government initiative it's part of the buffalo billion initiative which is governor andrew cuomo's um thing uh, i mean if you get into the weeds a little bit the money actually comes from the new york power authority but i mean it's a government program um most of the rest has been i would say from canadians uh people in canada we have one angel investor who is through a family trust is actually from australia um so still in the commonwealth but uh yeah generally i mean we we just kind of cross those bridges as we get to it by virtue of being in Canada, you you know it's a little bit easier. We live downtown Toronto, where where most of the uh, Canadian investment capital has has some kind of a presence. Uh, we spent some time in New York, not really a lot of time in the Valley, um, so we get those introductions sometimes. But uh, yeah, just I think by virtue of geographic location, um, Corey and I both grew up here, up in the burbs, but we're downtown now, obviously. Um, and, and just going through different different programs here, whether it's government, accelerators, incubators, um, that's generally where our network has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so from your experience dealing with like Canadian uh, sources of funding, whether it's investor, whether it's uh, government sources, do you think they tend to be more conservative than, than U.S.? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Private sources, absolutely. I think that's I, generally true. generally when someone is asking or looking for in terms of milestones around the seed stage here, or probably what they're looking for for the Series A stage in the states. Just overall risk appetite is not necessarily as large when it comes to Canadians, but at the same time, um, we make up for it with the government funding. You know, yeah. obviously we spent some time in New York uh, and specifically in Buffalo through the 43 North program and their government, uh, government supplements and, and, um, and grant programs and stuff just are not, are not there like they are up here, provincial, federal. Um, Shred is huge. You know, the equivalent they have of Shred in the U.S. is like less than 10% in terms of what you get back versus the 50 to 70% you get here based on certain variables. So um, a lot of our uh, American friends who, who are startup founders, uh, when, when we talk to them about government funding and stuff like that, their jaws drop. So um, a lot of people complain about the, the investment environment up here being conservative, like you asked, but uh, I don't think as many people necessarily are talking about how... Uh, wouldn't say it's completely balanced out, but we, we certainly do have an edge uh, through the government funding. And it's, it's not just in Toronto either. That works across the country. Um, some provinces may be maybe a bit further ahead than others, but I don't think that many people are talking about the maturity of our ecosystem in that sense, uh, so much as they're bemoaning the lack of, of early stage risk capital here. Mm-hmm. 
um, going back to your the products and services that you offer, can you talk about the different brands that you have worked with and what kind of campaigns you have worked on? Yeah, so there's been variety. Um, so that customer demonstration program that we uh, completed with the Ontario Centers of Excellence, our partner for that was Aeroplan. Um, early on, we got an introduction to them around the core value prop of the benchmarks for their entire organization or all their marketing initiatives. Um, and they were one of the big Eurekas or drive, drivers of focusing on the influencer space. Um, they utilized a number of our influencers where they traditionally would have gotten recommendations from an agency uh, and saw extremely strong performance using the recommendations we made compared to their traditional ones. Um, we also have worked with uh, Scotia Bank early on. Um, we worked with uh, Live Nation early on. Live Nation's a great case study. They had a concert coming to town. Uh, it was undersold. They needed to find a way to cost-effectively sell more tickets in a short period of time. Uh, we ran through a number of followers of the artists, uh, social media profiles, provided them a recommendation on micro-influencers they could use, and those influencers got free tickets in return for uh, schedule postings that they would make leading up to the concert. Um, more recently, we found a lot of traction in the uh, public service space. We recently signed a member of parliament um, to help them identify influencers around a number of key topics leading into the 29 election, 2019 election. Um, we signed a police department uh, to raise awareness around local initiatives that are mandated across their, what do you want to call it, their, their riding or their um, the area that they cover, um, so where they had a lot of traditional methods that they would spend significant dollars on, now they are uh, utilizing social media influencers to get those messages across to the community. Um, a who else? I mean, we're we're especially with the Live Nation thing that sort of opened our eyes to a space that we hadn't been that focused on before we started doing a lot of outreach to like tech conferences other music events um you know food festivals or other other festivals of that nature um anything where you know there's there's a live event coming up that is potentially undersold where giving away a few free tickets isn't really a big deal in exchange for for driving awareness in that in that uh, target market one of the really cool things that the tech does is um, is try to identify a geographic location or a geographic area. So when you get into live events, obviously geolocation becomes really, really important, especially in, in you know the Twitterverse, for example, where where tweets just kind of fly around from everywhere. If you're able to identify people who are in a certain geographic area, uh, especially micro influencers, it's usually not much of a stretch to assume a lot of their following will also be from that area, will also be interested in the things that they're interested in. So it really just comes down to um, whatever the use case is, 
you're applying tech that is is kind of cutting through the noise and, and just shortlisting a bunch of people who fit certain criteria that someone like an event organizer, for example, or, or someone who's running a political campaign is looking for. Um, and, you know, really hot topic in recent years is about automation of jobs, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think we're, as we're starting to see that conversation evolve, um, people are starting to realize there's not a lot of jobs that are really being automated out completely. It's more like jobs that have really menial, um, time-consuming, but you know, not high brain power tasks can be automated if they're just approached in a certain way and it, it frees up uh, the person who normally had to spend a bunch or all of their day doing these really, you know, mind-numbing tasks to actually um, put a bit more thought behind behind what they're doing and take away some of the monotony of it, uh, let the computers do that work and, and let them take some autonomy, uh, give them a bit more more time and freedom to come up with creative solutions to the problems they, they face in their job or in their mission. Um, and yeah, like I said, just let, uh, let some of the computers and, and AI and... Uh, and then things of that nature do the kind of repetitive work. Mm -hmm. uh, so now that you have some quite a lot of traction, definitely some nice clients, do you feel like you can uh, financially support the business by reinvesting your profits or do you still feel the need to have uh, investor money or government support? So there's a trade-off and probably has a lot to do with our ambitions too, but we've we're actually pretty close to the point if we stopped investing in our growth today um, we do see profitability or at the end of the tunnel when it comes to profitability but at the same time we're both pretty hungry and have a lot um, a lot more we want to achieve with the business so yes in theory we're getting to that point where we can start to take um, the dollars we bring in and support ourselves and support the business with that. But at the same time, when it comes to driving certain growth numbers and certain milestones that we want to achieve, uh, that would require additional investment in continuing to put the foot on the gas to keep that growing. Um, so yes, in theory, but no, we're not really ready to. We haven't successfully revolutionized the entire digital marketing industry yet, so we still have a lot we want to do. Um, I think five years ago when, when we really started working on this, we knew we were early in that sense, and, and there was still a lot of kind of black magic around digital marketing. Um, if you'd asked me back then, if in 2018... Uh, if, if people would still be relying on vanity metrics and, and you know, at best comparing against uh, historical versions of their own performance as opposed to uh, the rest of the industry in real time, I'd say no way. Technology is moving too fast. Digital marketing is moving too fast. You know, we're, we're going to be doing all kinds of crazy stuff in marketing, but really when, when you look at it now, we haven't seen that much innovation in the space, so we still feel like we have a long ways to go both in terms of evangelizing the, the uh, accountability and transparency aspect of it and in just building out the tech and making it really, um, 
really kind of stand on its own. And, and just going back to what I was saying before, um, empowering marketers to, to be more creative and take more autonomy in their work rather than being bogged down like, like a lot of digital marketers are with kind of the monotony uh, and the day-to-day the day-to-day tasks that just burn people out. So you mentioned vanity metrics. What are the vanity metrics that has been misleading the brands about the effectiveness of their campaigns? I mean, you, you hear about it and, and anyone who is, you know, using Facebook or Instagram, for example, if you look in your analytics, you'll see terms like reach. Um, you'll see, yeah, you know, likes and comments, the uh, followers, like follower count. These are things that are really easily gamed, uh, and it's starting to come to the forefront now. You know, things like click farms or being able to buy likes, that sort of thing. So, anything that can be really easily gamed like that is not something that you should be using to measure your campaigns. Yeah, and additionally, like TV ads have always been sold based on views and impressions. So, digital has follow those same like trying to follow the same methodologies because that's how advertisers have bought ads for so many years now you would buy digital based on views and impressions as well but the value of a view varies so drastically depending on what it is and digital and pathlight makes that makes it possible to actually measure and understand who is viewing versus tv you're just kind of spraying and fingers crossed so now that it is this new world and you are able to almost attribute a value to different types of views and different types of impressions, yes, a view is still a way to track something, but bucketing those into different types of views or different groups of people has a lot more value to your measurement than just a total number. Um, and as you go, go more micro in terms of the people you're looking at and how that actually ties to your end objectives, typically sales, number, volume, things like that, it uh, becomes a lot more valuable than just an overall number of impressions or size of your reach. Like We have the technology to track people all the way from essentially the first time they're exposed to something all the way through the buyer's journey and, and to the point where they actually make a purchase. It's just that the, the marketing technology ecosystem is really fragmented. You really do still need to put in a lot of technical effort to build a functional marketing stack that tells you what you need to know. Um, and there's little shortcuts, things like last click attribution and stuff like that that just don't tell the whole story, but they represent sort of incremental improvements in, in uh, in analytics and in, in being able to track the buyer's journey, um, there just there hasn't been enough investment in the innovation of marketing analytics and, and marketing technology. There's thousands and thousands of marketing tech vendors, but if you want to build a stack and make ten of these tools work together to give you that full picture, you really do need to invest on the technical side in in building your own code base essentially to tie those tools together and give you what you want. And we're just seeing with the way agency margins, profit margins are, are getting beaten down. They are not investing in, in innovating the tech. Um, and then um, at the same time, and for some of the same reasons, you're seeing the brands 
move a lot of their, their marketing efforts away from their agencies and in-house, but they're facing growing pains with that too, because it's hard to find talent, it's hard to retain talent in just a, a singular organization for those marketing functions. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of gaps still in the industry that, like I said, just coming back around, we have the technology to solve these things. It's a question of, um, of being committed to innovating in that space and in, in putting the resources where they need to be to make it happen and, and in shifting a whole industry's mindset, an industry that historically wasn't that focused on technology, it was more focused on creative. Um, so it is, it is a slow burn, but uh, I, I do believe wholeheartedly we'll get there. That's what, what keeps us coming in every day and, and pushing. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned some of the vanity metrics, uh, what are the right metrics? I think you briefly touched on that, but what are the right metrics that uh, brands should focus on? Uh, sales, uh, definitely sales or volume of sales or frequency or basket size or um, views and impressions are okay, are okay if they're bucketed into small groups based on not necessarily a total but directly tied to their target audience. Um, but yeah, it, it always comes back to sales volume sign-ups, registrations, what are those actual, what is the core objective of that campaign you're running? Um, How many screens do you have to go through to get from the initial sort of awareness to an actual purchase? How many people drop off at each one of those places? You should be working to obviously make that experience more user-friendly and take less steps to get to the end goal once you've got someone who's interested in what you're doing uh, or what you're selling. Um, so, so a lot of the campaigns that we look at, um, we do try and instill that. Um, less screens means less drop-off. Um, things like coupons, just to give a more specific example, how many of these coupons were downloaded versus how many of them were redeemed. You know, That's the type of thing that a larger organization to make those systems kind of talk to each other is, is a lot of work. Um, but that is really where you need to be looking and, and where your head needs to be at in order to, to actually make marketing decisions based on that information. And, and probably paramount in, in all of that is being able to have that information available to you when you need it, not months later, uh, which is generally how things happen now is you run the campaign. Um, you have some little indicators while you're running the campaign about whether or not it's working, but really you don't get to the postmortem until months later when some poor assistant manager has, has compiled all the, uh, all the metrics and statistics manually and uh, hopefully doesn't have to go tell his or her boss that you know there was a huge gap somewhere that everybody dropped off at this certain point and they weren't able to recognize it and subsequently fix it while the campaign was in market. Um, I mean, to a marketer, to a digital marketer, this sounds like a really idealistic scenario, but frankly, in, in this day and age, that should be really standard. Um, but we've, we've been stuck for a long time kind of measuring the same things and, and, and looking at the same outputs. Uh, and it really, the longer it goes, the harder it is to sort of run a digital transformation through your, through your organization to allow you to see those type of metrics. And you need to have some foresight in terms of what you want the end output to look like in order to fix all the inputs and the tracking on the way in and through uh, in order to have outputs that are timely and that can can inform you what kind of decisions to make 
one when it's still in play, you know, when you can still improve something. Yeah, so a really good case study of that. We did a project for 3M a couple of years ago where they had a campaign in market. Um, the client was not happy. Our client was actually the agency working on behalf of 3M, but 3M was not happy with the performance. Um, that agency hired us to tell them, A, well, it was first for, to give them some data to back up their performance, to go back to the actual client and go, look, we are performing better than everyone else. Um, and they were able to go back and show, yeah, we're performing up to standard, but at the same time, there's tons of other contests out there where the flow is a little different and their performance is over double, like in terms of the number of people that make it through the end. Uh, if we make X and Y change, we can get, they ended up getting 110 or 115% increase on people that went through the campaign opposed to drop off. Um, and they could only do that by having, uh, understanding how that campaign worked and comparing it from an apples to apples standpoint to other campaigns in market um, and be able to make those tweaks on the fly. Um, and they, they had held back uh, they were smart, being proactive and kind of pushing their agency to make those, uh, to prove their case, but that ended up getting them, they, they were spending 50 grand on media to support that campaign. It was only halfway through, so you could argue they doubled their money on that other 25 grand they spent by making those real-time adjustments. And it was a very small adjustment, you know, it was was, I think, combining two screens or just changing the location of a couple of the input fields, like it was not a big job done in one day. Um, we are seeing some movement in the industry towards um, more accountability being demanded by the brands of their agencies. Uh, I think a good example from last year is McDonald's had worked with uh, their agency for 20 years, um, put out an RFP to potentially change their agency, and essentially what they asked for was uh, a, a pay per performance model, pay by performance model. Um, so they obviously cover the overhead of the agency, but anything above that, basically any profits were based on um, how much they could outperform whatever kind of benchmarks or, or milestones they set. Um, I think it's, it's a good, the thought is correct, but I, I immediately ask myself just being in the space that we are, like what are those benchmarks they're measuring against? Where did they get them from? I'm pretty sure they're just their their internal benchmarks. Although I mean, obviously it's McDonald's, they're a huge company. They spend a billion dollars a year on their, their digital marketing. Um, they could go to a research house and 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 pay them to create customized benchmarks. Um, but you know that's that's not within every organization's reach. Uh, and the reason they were able to to get an agency to capitulate to that type of model is simply because they have one of the highest spends in North America. Uh, and we really believe that that type of, um, that type of service or that type of model should be available to pretty much anyone who's spending money on digital. Uh, but again, it, it requires access to, to a data set. It requires access to unbiased industry benchmarks in order to be in standards from one channel to another. Absolutely. The, the terminology being used on one platform versus another. Sometimes you have two different terms that are actually referring to the same thing. Sometimes you have two terms that look identical but are referring to different things. Um, we've, we've 
you know, solve for this within our own, our own business, our own software, um, our own algorithms, um, but it's not industry standard yet. And then we're really missing that. So there's these few kind of key foundational aspects um, that are missing from the agency at large that would allow this type of um, evaluation to take place. Awesome. Uh, how can people learn about your business? Well, they can go to coints.com, Q-O-I-N-T-S.com, or follow us on social media. It's all, all of our addresses are Facebook slash coins, Instagram slash coins. Um, being in the space, we try to be as active as we can there. Um, and we've got a newsletter we put out every six to eight weeks that you can sign up for on our website. If you go to the website and fill out the contact form, we will receive it. We will get back to you. Perfect. So last question before we go. How's your experience in the IBM innovation space? It's a fair point. We haven't really talked about IBM too, too much. Um, we're, we're definitely very lucky to be here. Um, it's really well located downtown. Um, it's really... It's helped us, I'd say, attract talent. Um, it's helped us commercialize early products from a standpoint that we get support on our costs for using Watson as part of the global entrepreneurship program. So we've been able to do a lot of experimenting for clients early on that we might not have been able to afford otherwise. Um, and navigating just a company like IBM, being having access to the space and having access to IBMers who, who come through here every day has really, really been helpful for us. Uh, even even though we've navigated large large organizations before, usually with some difficulty, uh, definitely gives us a huge leg up and then, having access to people here. And they say not to be the smartest person in a room. We're definitely not. There's a lot of serious brainiacs here working on some amazing technology of their own. Um, they've done a good job in terms of curating. There's no one necessarily competitive to one another, but everyone's got some level of uh, machine learning, deep thinking, um, and where we've got a developer really talented in one space, on the other side of the room there's someone that's really talented in another area and we're able to bounce things off of each other, get support. I'm sure it's made uh, things a lot more efficient from a uh, enhancement standpoint in terms of the way we do different things on the technical side. There's a lot of added value being in this space that's not financial. And we get to do cool things like this. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, Corey and uh, Harris, it has been very nice speaking with you yeah. and learning about coins. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for the questions. Thanks a lot. Perfect. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about coins, you can visit their website, coins.com. And thank you so much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes.